Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID, clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host. My name is Sarah Dong. I am a combined adult and pediatric infectious disease fellow currently living in Boston. And I'm Jeff, an infectious disease fellow also living in Boston. Yay! Since this is an early episode, I just wanted to briefly comment on the format of the podcast since you are getting to know us. For a little bit of background, you can listen to episode zero, but Febrile aims to discuss ID cases. They may not be presented in the typical structured HMP format per se, but crafted more so as a story. I hope this will be easier to listen to, but also in many ways reflects how we see the case as a consultant. We will pause along the way to hear from our special guests who we'll introduce in just a few moments, and we'll focus on highlighting key ID concepts or questions. As one last quick disclaimer, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. And with that, I will throw it over to Jeff, who's going to introduce our special guest today. Thanks, Sarah, and I'm so excited to introduce the first ever guest of Febrile, Dr. Wendy Stead. Dr. Wendy Stead is the program director of the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center Infectious Disease Fellowship, and she's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She completed a Rapkin Fellowship in medical education in 2010 and dedicates herself to patient care, medical education, and curriculum development work at the residency and fellowship levels. Awesome. Okay, Wendy, we called ourselves a cultured podcast. So we were going to open the show so that folks could learn a little bit about our guests by asking you to share a piece of culture that brings you joy. That can be art or a book or it can be food and activity it can be anything you want. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad you asked. Um, so I um, was just telling you guys this the other night, actually, that I uh, am completely in love with anything by David Sedaris uh, these days, who, as you all know, is a great essayist um, and humorist um, and has written a bazillion books. Um, Right now, I'm reading When You Are Engulfed in Flames, um, which I highly recommend. (laughs) Sounds appropriate. I highly highly recommend all of his stuff. Um, And I will tell you that my personal favorite is called That's Amore. Um, and he's telling a story about this woman, Helen, um, who he uh, had an apartment next to in New York City for many years. And it is absolutely laugh out loud. Uh, hilarious. Um, so I highly recommend anything by David Sedaris. It is so necessary right now for oh, all of us to laugh. I love it. I'm going to add I have to add it to the list. <laughs> oh, and that's our pager notification. Today's consult question is about a particular rash concerning for purpura fulminans. Please assist with antibiotics and workup. All right, so I'll, I'll start the case off. So we have a 60-year-old gentleman. He has a history of immune thrombocytopenic purpura, or ITP, and he actually had a prior splenectomy in the setting of bleeding because of his ITP. And his only other medical history is notable for cholecystectomy um, for gallstones. And he really 
came to the ED with just 24 hours of symptoms. He had nausea, vomiting, and some back pain. Um, he wasn't, he hasn't been doing much else like most of us uh, as he's been isolating at home with his wife. Um, and when he came to the ED, he actually looked okay. Uh, he got some IV fluids. He looked, he looked well. They still, because of the splenectomy, started empiric antibiotics. He got vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam. They sent some blood cultures in the ED. His initial labs showed a slight AKI, which was chalked up to maybe some dehydration with his nausea and vomiting. Uh, but were otherwise normal. They also got some cross-sectional imaging that was also unremarkable. And then while he was in the ED, he developed sudden severe diarrhea and rigors. And while this was happening, he also was developing a new purpuric rash on his face and hands only about six hours after his arrival. And it continued to spread. And, and the concern by the providers in the emergency department was that this, is, this was purpura fulminans developing. Uh, repeat labs... Well, he was still in the ED, so this is only hours after his initial normal labs showed a new thrombocytopenia with platelets in the 20s from a normal just hours before, a new anemia, worsening AKI, and elevated transaminases. Because of sort of his clinical trajectory, he's actually admitted to the ICU, which and his labs continued to sort of deteriorate and become more deranged. And of note, he had a worsening coagulopathy, uh, elevated PT, PTT, his INR was 3, D-dimer was above the detectable limit, uh, fibrinogen was low at 35. Despite all this, he actually, his review of systems wasn't all that remarkable um, at that time. No, no neck stiffness, he didn't have any photophobia, no joint or muscle pains, urinary symptoms. And this is when we met the patient. At that time, he was afebrile, he was tachycardic. He had a, a little bit of sh low blood pressure at that time, but he wasn't on pressor medications, he wasn't hypoxic. Uh, he was alert. He was able to answer questions. The, his exam was unremarkable except for this diffuse purpuric rash, his face and neck and arms and legs, really quite striking. And he was still on vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam at that point. We have blood cultures that were pending and stool cultures that were also pending. So at this time, with this super sick patient, um, we just wanted to get your initial thoughts and any additional questions that you might have at this point. Great. Um, so we have a 60-year-old guy who had a splenectomy. I'm not sure how long ago he had it, but I'm told it's in the past, um, who basically comes in with uh, initially actually kind of a not such severe a presentation, and then suddenly over the course of just a couple of hours goes from fairly stable to looking like he is septic and in DIC, um, and we're told developing lesions on his skin diffusely, which sound like they're consistent with purpura fulminans, as well as new severe diarrhea. And so I guess the things that immediately go through my mind are the things that can make someone go from looking pretty good, not that bad, to looking like they're about to potentially die within the space of just a few hours. And there's not a super long list, actually. And that list is very much affected by the things that I know about him as a host, um, especially the fact that I know that he's had a splenectomy that is definitely going to alter my initial approach to thinking about him. And so when I think about things that can cause a very severe sepsis picture, that list is 
a, a little bit longer, um, but I'm going to need to immediately zero in on the things that are going to cause sepsis in the postmenectomy patient because I need to make sure that I cover those things. And that list varies a little bit from the list I think of as more sort of generalized sepsis causes. Um, and so I really want to zero in on the encapsulated organisms. I want to think about strep pneumo. I need to think about H flu, although it's less common. I need to think about Neisseria meningitidis as causes. Um, I don't want to forget about the other causes of sepsis. And you told me that he had a history of gallstones um, and he's having some GI type symptoms with nausea and vomiting and now diarrhea. And so, and he has um, a cholestatic picture to his LFTs a little bit along with the transaminitis. And so I want to make sure I'm not missing something like cholangitis or something more straightforward that could be causing overwhelming sepsis in him. Um, and so I'm going to want to think about getting imaging. Whenever I see somebody go from not that sick to super sick really fast, I think about toxic shock syndromes as well. Um, although those are not things I would think of as being typically more common in somebody who has been post-splenectomy, things like staph or strep, toxic shock syndrome. They can make labs look like that and they can make somebody look septic, but he, I mean, it can happen in anyone, but I'm not thinking that he's necessarily predisposed to that. Um, and then with the diarrhea um, and the purple fulminans, um, I also am thinking about other organisms that can cause purpura fulminans. And so Strepneumo's on that list, Neisseria's on that list for me. There are enteric organisms reportedly on that list, like Klebsiella and E. coli and other staphs and streps as well. But I've never seen those things cause purpura fulminans, and I've seen them cause a lot of sepsis. So I don't think they're really common causes of purpura fulminans. Um, Vibrio species um, can cause bad diarrhea, uh, vulnificus and parahemolyticus, and those are things that I've seen cause purpura fulminans. They are not particular pathogens in someone post-splenectomy, so I wouldn't necessarily jump to them. But at the same time, I don't want to forget them and just zero in on a splenectomy and forget to think about other things. And I guess the one other thing that should be crossing our mind, um, and I was told he didn't have much of a travel history, um, but there are protozoal organisms that patients who are post-splenectomy can be at increased risk for getting and for having very severe consequences of, um, namely Babesia and malaria. Um, and so I would want to know if he might have been exposed to Babesia if he lives in this area. I think there's a high risk of that. And that could make him very sick. Can it make him come in looking fine and then be that sick a couple hours later? I don't think so. I'm really thinking about the bacterial organisms um, in a patient who does that. In terms of additional questions that I would want to ask, um, I would, yeah. <laughs> I would want to ask about, um, what time of year it was that he's presenting. I'm not sure you said that. I would want to ask about any, um, food exposures that he might've had with Vibrio in mind. I would want to ask about any potential animal contact that he might've had because there are some kind of more esoteric causes of post-splenectomy infection that I might want to think about. Um, and I would want to ask about potential tick bites, um, given the concern about Babesia. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking of that I forgot to mention in the differential um, is uh, other toxin-mediated causes of going from zero to 60 in terms of being super sick would be uh, clostridial infections. And I've seen fulminant C. diff colitis take people from zero to 60 very quickly like that. So I might want to ask about recent hospital exposures, antibiotics, things like that. So I'm going to give you a little more social history, but I before I do, I just want to see, are you okay with Vanc Piptazo for now? Would you like to make any adjustments? I mean, 
I think right at this moment, I'm okay with vancomycin. Uh, you know, for me, post-splenectomy sepsis coverage empirically would be vancomycin and ceftriaxone usually, um, and that would cover almost all of the things that we talked about. Um, but I think given the GI type of presentation here as well with the nausea, vomiting, and the diarrhea, um, and the question of cholangitis that I raised, I, I don't think that this is a bad idea to have them on a little bit broader coverage for resistant gram negatives um, and anaerobes at the same time. And, and that coverage will get the typical um, post-splenectomy sepsis causes. What it won't do, and I should mention, is it won't penetrate as CNS. And patients with post-splenectomy sepsis, if it's with one of the classic organisms like strep pneumo or Neisseria meningitidis or H. flu, um, often involves a CNS. And so that's something to think about uh, in a patient like this. And it's one of the reasons that ceftriaxone would be recommended for upfront therapy in a lot of cases when you're not potentially worried about GI involvement um, and other sources. All right. So I'll give you a little bit more information. Um, the patient lives, like was mentioned, with his wife in the northeastern U.S. It is currently summertime. He has a dog named Fido. He has two cats named Barton and Ella. <laughs> I can, <laughs> if you guys don't think it's funny, I can add my own laugh tracks because I'm controlling. <laughs> um, I didn't want to be too I, aggressive I, with the laughing. <laughs> I, I feel like I should warn listeners that I love animal exposures and, you know, they're just going to have to decide if it's a red herring or not. Um, he smoked tobacco in his 30s and stopped around that time. He does not smoke or use any drugs or drink at this time. Uh, he has no kind of unusual dietary habits, so no raw meat. He has not had any recent seafood or shellfish. Um, he has not had any fresh water exposure or been on a boat or anything like that. Um, he does mention that they live in a wooded area and he's definitely had tick bites before. He most recently had one probably a couple months ago because uh, it's the late summer, probably at the beginning of the summer, and then took doxycycline but didn't really have any other issues. And so... After you see the patient, he continues to do poorly. He develops new hypoxia and worsening acidosis and is emergently intubated in the ICU. And from there, just continues to go downhill. And so he has progressive septic shock with multi-organ failure. He's requiring three pressors, CRRT. Um, he's actually having episodes of hypoglycemia along with all this. And the rash that was described earlier has kind of continued to evolve and is quite diffuse at this point. But you get some new info. You get blood cultures and your preliminary information is that you have gram-negative rods growing. So we thought we'd pause again and see if you have other questions or if you want to make any changes. Yeah, um, I guess I would say that that, that would have kind of blown me up a little bit there to get the gram negative rods <laughs> because before you say that I am sure this is strep pneumo you know I don't have a doubt you know I don't have a doubt yeah. in my mind my mind because I know it's the most common cause of overwhelming post-splenectomy sepsis and I've seen it do this in patients and so I am really worried about that causes perpulmonans and would you know is being treated with the antibiotics that he's on but still what we know about post-splenectomy sepsis is it's incredibly highly morbid and deadly. And even with appropriate therapy, people often die 
and die very quickly. And so that's all in keeping. But gram negative rods throws me for a loop. And then I have to kind of step back because of the three big encapsulated organisms I think of, you know, I know Streptomyces is not a gram negative rod. I know Neisseria meningitidis shouldn't look like a gram negative rod. H flu will look like a gram negative rod. So I think that still needs to be on our list of concerns. It should be well covered by Piptazo. Um, it would make me think a little bit about whether he needs a lumbar puncture um, for the reasons that we talked about, if that's, if that's kind of moving up my list, uh, because you might make some changes to cover that source better. Um, and then it makes me think of some of the other gram negatives and, and one in particular that would very rarely cause bad post-splenectomy sepsis like this, uh, which is capnocytophaga. Um, I think you mentioned that he has a dog. Right, you mentioned the two cats, and I got distracted mm-hmm. because a- their names were so awesome. Excellent. Yes, he has a dog named Fido. <laughs> so, so that is a rare um, but well-described cause of post-splenectomy sepsis that can absolutely cause somebody to get very sick very fast and cause um, purple fulminans. And so I would need to worry about that. We would need to worry about that at this point in time. I would also still be worried about Vibrio here with the diarrhea and the purple fulminans. Um, Um, in someone with a gram-negative rod, because that would potentially grow in blood cultures. Um, And then I'd still be worried about the enterics, you know, the whole question of cholangitis or something, just overwhelming gram-negative endotoxemia, making this guy so sick and ultimately causing fulminans. And so I think in that setting, I would change his antimicrobial therapy uh, for a couple of reasons. I would probably add doxycycline to sort of double cover um, for Vibrio species, even though my suspicion is relatively low. I don't think that's something we can afford to miss, and there's not much risk to adding doxy. Um, and I would probably take the piperacillin tazobactam and I would probably switch it to meropenem at this point because it would continue to cover all of the other things that I'm worried about. It would continue to cover capnocytophaga, but the piptazo will do that as well. Um, but it will give great um, CNS penetration as well, and it will give potentially better coverage for multidrug resistant gram negative organisms that might be coming from the GI tract. Um, that might be, you know, ESBL uh, producers or something like that. Um, so those are the reasons that I might switch. And I'd continue the vancomycin for now just because I'm having trouble letting go of strep pneumo as a possibility, <laughs> although the meropenem would usually cover for that as well. Yeah, so I'll take us forward a little bit more. So the patient actually slowly uh, starts to turn the corner. Uh, pressors are able to be slowly weaned, but the patient is noted to be encephalopathic even after sedation is weaned off. CT head is obtained, and that shows several interparenchymal foci concerning for interparenchymal hemorrhage. And a CT torso also reveals uh, interval development of scattered subpleural and peripheral nodular pulmonary opacities that are concerning for septic emboli. That time, a TTE is obtained, which is negative, and a TEE is ultimately deferred given the patient's coagulopathy. He had a lot of oral pharyngeal bleeding, as you might imagine, given uh, the, the coagulopathy that he had. And then, so the big reveal is that blood cultures finally came back, and it was capnocytophaga. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so you what got it. What a surprise! Yeah, yeah. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wendy, what do you think about the 
negative echo and these pulmonary opacities in this setting, in this bug? I'm just curious. Yeah, I was thinking about that as you were mentioning it. I'm not sure. I, I don't even know if I would have chased down the T. I don't know if that I would have pushed hard for a TEE in this case, because I think there you're starting to think. So if you have pulmonary septic emboli, you're sort of thinking of right-sided endocarditis. And this is kind of a weird situation for right-sided endocarditis. And then if you think that the pulmonary hemorrhage might be some kind of mycotic aneurysm thing, then you're talking left-sided. Um, so you're kind of talking about a different picture. Um, and, and we know that he is having such um, disarray in his whole coagulation system right now that I think he is somebody that we know is going to have both thrombotic complications of what's going on um, and hemorrhagic complications of what's going on. And so I, I see those things as more representative of this whole kind of hyperinflammatory coagulopathic state um, than as some kind of, um, you know, clear um, embolic phenomenon from a focus of infection kind of endovascularly. What are kind of the top things that you think people should know about Capnocytophaga? Huh. Um, <laughs> so I think the top, it's a pretty rare organism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Could be a short list. But in most places, people have maybe seen one or two <laughs> cases in their entire life. Um, and so I think really the most important thing to know about Capnocytophaga is that um is that it's associated, it's, an, it's a rare cause of post-splenectomy sepsis. And you should think about it in splenectomized patients um, who come in septic. Um, and the typical impaired coverage that we recommend of vancoencephtraxone is usually going to cover for capnocytophaga. So you're covering it most of the time up front. Um, and thinking about it, the one other situation where I have seen it actually is in cirrhotic, is in a cirrhotic patient. And so thinking about it in patients, I feel like one thing I have learned a lot over the last 10 years is how, um, how incredibly immunosuppressed our cirrhotics are. More so than I understood 10 years ago, I have seen a lot develop. And I think there's been sort of a lot of uh, increased literature about those immune defects, but cirrhotics are also at risk for capnocytophaga. And so I think I think of the hosts who are at risk and I think about it as associated with dog exposures and probably important to realize it doesn't have to be a dog bite, but a dog scratch, a dog exposure. So a few notes on capnocytophaga. So it's a gram-negative rod. It has a long, fusiform shape. It's a fascidious organism. It grows slowly and often needs enriched agar. It's fussy. And it needs an increased CO2 concentration, so it's capnophilic, which is where the name capnocytophaga comes from. There's several species in the genus, and they're found in the oral cavities of dogs, cats, and other mammals. But capnocytophaga canamorsis is the most common cause of severe disease in humans. Risk factors, as Dr. Stead mentioned, dog bites, scratches, although it doesn't have to be a bite or a scratch, it can just be proximity, immunocompromised patients, asplenic patients, patients with cirrhosis or history of heavy alcohol use. And these organisms are generally susceptible to penicillin and cephalosporins. But there is some literature that some of them do have beta-lactamases. So if a patient's really sick, you know, in the ICU with shock, the treatment of choice is a beta-lactam, beta-lactamase combination antibiotic like piperacillin tazobactam or carbapenem. They are resistant to estranam and sometimes fluoroquinolones, just to note. So outside of highlighting a classic but somewhat uncommon bug, we thought this case was the perfect example of how fever in a patient with impaired splenic function really is a medical emergency. 
Um, and to complement this discussion, we thought it would be nice to quickly switch and think about the outpatient setting as well. Because I know as an ID fellow, we certainly see a lot of these patients that come in prior to surgery so that you can discuss risk management and what to do next. And so my first question is, that patient is in your office referred by their surgeon and right off the bat says, I'm not really sure why I'm here. What does the spleen have to do with an infectious disease doctor? And so we'd love to hear your approach to this with your patients. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first thing to mention there is that it is so awesome if the patients are coming to you from their surgeons who are actually thinking about this and want their patients to get really good counseling. Because I think, I feel like, that's kind of a new thing at our hospital. Patients didn't always used to get sent for this kind of level of counseling. And I actually, prior to that, and still, if you meet a patient that hasn't, and you ask them what they know about their splenectomy, they almost always seem to know almost nothing. They may be able to tell you that they think maybe there's an increased risk, or or they remember they got some vaccines, somebody told them to get some vaccines. But I think a lot of times patients really have no idea what removal of their spleen kind of puts them at risk for. Um, And so the first piece of it is making sure they understand that. Um, I don't usually get too involved with the very specifics about splenic function with the patients, about the red pulp and the white pulp. I mainly just tell them that the spleen is a really important filter for certain types of bacteria that cause severe infections. And patients that don't have it can be at increased risk of getting those infections. And then if they get them to have a bad outcome from those infections. Um, But there are a lot of things that we can do to help them prevent um, those infections um, if they, so that they don't end up getting them. Um, And so I usually talk to them a lot about the kind of three main encapsulated organisms that we've been talking about, streptococcal pneumoniae, um, H. flu, and uh, Neisseria meningitidis. Um, And we talk, about kind of the types of infections that those can cause and the types of vaccines I would recommend that they get to prevent those. Um, I also talk to them about um, in the area that we live in, uh, the risk for Babesia, because I have to say that of all of the super sick splenectomized patients I've seen with infection, the most common infection that I've seen be really devastating in the Massachusetts area is Babesia. I mean, every summer we see multiple patients who have had splenectomies and come in with severe, overwhelming Babesia needing to be in the ICU, um, exchange transfusion, all of that. I've seen patients die of overwhelming Babesia. Um, much more than the other bacterial infections. And so in Massachusetts, I tell them about Babesia. I teach them what that is. I recommend insect repellents containing DEET. I tell them about tick protection, you know, wearing um, clothes that will protect them when they're out, checking themselves for ticks. What's a deer tick? Um, I mentioned that if they're considering traveling anywhere that where there might be malaria, that that's also a concern. And so they should seek pre-travel advice um, about that and how to protect themselves from malaria. Um, And then I also talk to them about what we can do in terms of giving them antibiotics um, to help prevent uh, post-splenectomy sepsis if they happen to get a fever um, after they've had their splenectomy. That's a tough conversation 
I would love to hear if you guys have any thoughts about like how you do that one. Like, I think we should come up with a script for that, to be honest, because vaccines are kind of easy to explain. Um, you know, D to tick repellent is easy to explain. But once I go into, oh, and by the way, here's a prescription for an antibiotic to carry in your pocket or your purse and take it when you get a fever and go to an emergency room. That's such a weird thing to say to people. Um, and I think it takes time to kind of explain, well, this doesn't just mean if you get a sore throat and a runny nose and a low-grade fever that you have to run to the emergency room and take an antibiotic. But what you really want them to be aware of is what are some of those early signs of sepsis, like a high fever, like the shaking chills or rigors. Um, and I think that those things take a little while to explain because you don't want people overusing the emergency room either. Um, but you do want them to recognize when something seems like it's going wrong. Yeah, I think that's the question that I feel like I've gotten the most is you throw all this information out there and, you know, the patient asks, do I really need to go to the emergency room every time I have a cold? And fever is is more straightforward. Yes or no, take your antibiotic and go to the go to be seen. But I think having to talk through what if you have mild URI symptoms and you don't have a fever and you feel totally well, there probably is that gray zone where they can call and talk to their physician. Um, but, you know, it's hard to communicate that and sort of explain all those scenarios and create a good plan, especially in the short time span that office visits usually are. So when you're trying to educate patients about this lifelong increased risk, is there any sort of ballpark number you keep in your head and you tell your patients? Or is there another way that you sort of try to communicate this increased risk that they have compared to, say, their neighbor who has a normal spleen? I would say that I don't I don't typically quote numbers like that to patients in terms of like two times the risk of somebody that doesn't have a spleen or like maybe a 1% lifetime risk in an adult who's been splenectomized because I feel like those numbers sound more reassuring than they should to patients because in my mind, it's not so much their level of increased risk. It's that if they get it, it can be so devastating that I want to almost... I want to really magnify their level of concern about it. And I feel like those numbers don't really do it justice. So I don't, I don't talk to them too much about that. Um, I just, I, I spend more time kind of trying to educate them about the symptoms of, um, of severe infection. Another question is, you know, do you feel like there is a way to approach patients who have true anatomic or iatrogenic explenia, where it's, say, removed by a surgeon versus those who may have functional hyposplenia. Or I feel like what I've seen is, you know, they had a small splenic infarct in the setting of endocarditis. And do you feel like there is a spectrum of risk? And, and is there any way for you to sort of restratify them differently? I also don't spend a lot of time talking about that because I feel like we don't we don't really know. I've definitely had many um 
clinicians older than me along the way when I was a fellow say, you know, oftentimes with a traumatic splenectomy or surgery, if they leave behind a little splenule, they're probably fine. And I think there are even surgeons that will try to like leave behind bits of spleen, um, like in the omentum or something, but in order to still have some function and probably those people are at some decreased risk. Probably the people with some functional asplenia are at some decreased risk compared to those who have had the whole thing removed. But, but since we can't really quantify that, I do not spend a lot of time kind of parsing that out for people either. I kind of consider everyone in the same way. You're at increased risk because your spleen isn't working like it should. Um, and here are the things that I would suggest you do to protect yourself. Wendy, maybe you could really quickly run through sort of the key vaccines for patients with asplenia. So, um, so the vaccines that we usually prioritize are the ones versus the encapsulated organisms, um, and they require usually more than one dose, most of them, um, in these immunocompromised patients. And so, for the uh, pneumonia va- for the strep pneumo vaccine, you want to give the Prevnar vaccine first, the PCV13, um, and then about eight weeks later, you can give them their pneumococcal vaccine, their pneumovax. Um, for the meningococcal vaccine, you want to give them the four serotype. It's the what is it, ACWY vaccine. Um, you want to give them that one and then give them a booster. Not everybody needs a booster of that one, but the splenectomized patients need a booster, or not a booster, but a second dose, I would say, the eight weeks later. Um, and then you also want to give this group of patients the meningococcal B vaccine. Um, and there are a couple of options there. We have Trumemba at Beth Israel. And so in a splenectomized patient, Trumemba is a three-dose series at one, I think at zero, one month, and six months. Um, so that one's a little bit harder. Um, and then I want to give them all influenza vaccine as well, because getting influenza would increase their risk of then getting potentially strep pneumo as a complication of that. Um, and so I want to make sure they get influenza vaccine if it's the appropriate time of year for that. Um, I guess another thing that's important for people to know who might be taking care of these patients in the primary care setting or the ID clinic is that some of these require booster shots years later. And so uh, it's recommended at least by the ACIP, um, the U.S., uh, They recommend giving a booster of the Pneumovax in five years, so the PPSV23 in five years, and also um, the quadrivalent um, meninge vaccine. So if you're doing menactrum and VEO, you're supposed to give that five years as well, and really every five. Um, And then what I just learned very recently, because I happen to look it up for a patient, is that now there's a recommendation to boost the meningococcal B vaccines. Um, You're supposed to give a booster at a year and then every two to three years after that. Um, as well. So yeah, they require boosters. And I think primary care doctors can totally forget it. You know, you think, oh, did you get your vaccines? Oh, yeah, I got my vaccines. And then I think people walk away and are like, okay, they got their vaccines, but you're supposed to do boosters. And then hit uh, the Hib vaccine, you're supposed to give one dose of um, as sort of like a booster, although the risk of Hib is much, much lower, um, because, you know, we have such good herd immunity against Hib, we just don't see that much of it anymore. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about prophylaxis with the emergency pill and pocket antibiotic. Um, I think the other thing that sometimes gets suggested or at least thrown around is the question of daily antibiotic prophylaxis. And um, I think there are some who would discuss whether or not patients who are kind of what we consider high risk would warrant daily prophylaxis in addition to the pill and pocket. And so I think generally that list would include young children under the age of five, 
Um, those who've had severe life-threatening infections before, maybe they have an immunocompromising condition at baseline, and potentially in sort of the early period right after splenectomy. And I'm just curious if that's something that you have offered to patients, uh, daily antibiotic prophylaxis. Um, in that setting, we would be talking about daily penicillin or amoxicillin. Um, I, for pill and pocket, I think most people would recommend amoxicillin clavulonate. Um, and maybe we can suggest another option for if a patient has a penicillin allergy. Yeah. I will say, Sarah, that I don't think in the adult population, the recommendation about giving prophylaxis post-surgery is really kind of messy. And I, you hear a lot of different recommendations about that. I will say it's not usually my practice in that first year after splenectomy to give daily uh, prophylaxis, but instead to talk to them about um about the risk and give them the pill in pocket. I usually um, give a quinolone. I usually give them levofloxacin uh, for the pill in pocket if they are uh, truly allergic to penicillins. But I don't know if I don't know that it's right not to prophylax, Sarah. You know, I, I just don't think we know. I don't think there have been great studies kind of looking at that. And the risk of daily penicillin for a year seems pretty low. So I, I don't know if maybe we should rethink that as well. But in general, I I don't see most people, um, at least in BI and in the adult literature, recommending um, prolonged daily prophylaxis post-surgery. Ah, yeah. Oh, Wendy, well, thank you so much for your insight into all of these topics. Um, any final parting thoughts? Can I just say to your listeners that if if they are not, if they are not currently um, making sure that every patient that they meet along the way who has a splenectomy knows the risks that they're at, um, that is a huge void um, that you can fill as an infectious disease doctor or primary care doctor. Even let's say you're meeting somebody for a totally other reason and you happen to notice in their past medical history that they've had a splenectomy, just ask them if they know what that means and if they know what kind of risk that confers. And I bet you will hear a lot of what are you talking about? I have no idea what you mean. Um, and that's a great opportunity to teach somebody something that might actually save their life. Well, thank you one more time to Dr. Wendy Stead for joining us. Oh, thank you. That was so fun. I am so glad y'all could join us for our first ever episode of Febrile. We have plenty of more awesome episodes to come. A thanks to our guest today and supporter of this new podcast, Wendy Stead. And another special shout out to my co-host, Jeff, who created the Febrile intro music as well. You can check out our website, febrilepodcast.com, for the post-episode consult notes, which will have a summary, infographics, and links to references. Please also connect and follow us on Twitter. Let us know what you think, what you want to hear in future episodes. And I am always looking for new fellows who want to join and talk about ID. So thank you, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.